It's a delight to be with every single one of you, especially if you're a guest, maybe with us for the very first time, especially those of you joining us on the web and via podcast, and all of you out in beautiful, and I mean beautiful, Glendive, Montana. Uh, they called and said I needed to go a little easier on the Glendivians. They were feeling a little, uh, you know, second rate or something, but I love you in Glendive. They also said I better not show my face there or be lights out for me. Love ya, Glendive. At the end of World War II, there was a submarine, a United States submarine. It was returning from the war into the harbor at Newport News, Virginia. This was, as you could imagine, supposed to be a glorious day as all of the brave men who had served as the crew on that ship had served so valiantly during the battle. This was the day they were to be rejoined with their families and friends who had missed them so much over the course of the long war. But just as it was coming into the dock at Newport News, something terrible and tragic happened to the submarine and it sunk to the very bottom of the harbor within sight, literally, of the safety of the dock that it was supposed to arrive and disembark its sailors at. Now, there wasn't a scratch on the thing from all of the fighting of World War II, but there it was, still sunk in the harbor. As you would imagine, Coast Guard divers were very quickly dispatched to survey what had happened, evaluate the hull, whether there had been any compromise to the hull, and so on, whether a rescue would be possible, making that determination. And as the divers were performing their evaluation under the water, they heard the unmistakable sound of a sailor, still on board the submarine, of course, tapping on the hull of the ship in Morse code, these words, Is there hope? Is there hope? And that is the exact same question that so many people are asking right now, isn't it? Is there hope? And there's not a thing that is as devastating to the human psyche as losing hope. Is there? Is there hope? For you, it might be something as trivial as our favorite sports team, your favorite sports team, who's so far behind in win-loss record or in points that there is absolutely no hope whatsoever of them pulling it out and winning. You could be like me. I'm a 49ers fan. Yes. And you can just put a fork in us. We are finished. Right? Other teams are still playing football. Lots of other teams. And uh, we're not. And for us who are 49ers fans, our hope is always in next season. We've got next year. Right? And there's next year. On a much, much more serious note. There might be some people who are sitting in front of a pile of bills right now asking that question. Is there hope? Is there hope? Some are standing beside a fresh grave asking, is there hope? Some are sitting in a doctor's office in an exam room reviewing test results asking, is there hope? There are those who have been out of work and they've been waiting so intently for that job offer, that one job offer to finally come through and they're beginning to ask, is there any hope? Some are wondering, will I ever get married? Is there hope? Others are wondering, will I ever have a child? Is there hope? Some are wondering, will I ever have a family to call my own? Is there hope? Whatever the circumstance is that we're facing, we're all trying to answer the question Is there hope? And it's an incredibly important question that we all must at some point in our lives come face to face and answer. Is there hope? And you know that in days of waning hope, we'll try almost anything. We'll try a whole bunch of stuff to attempt to fill up the vacuum of hope that we're feeling right in here. But so many of those methods, so many of those tactics that we try to fill in the hope vacuum, they're nothing more than scams, crocs, or 
hope stealers, aren't they? I heard about a website, for example. It was offering eight steps to have hope in the new year. And you hear that and you're like, cool, there'll be some good stuff there. It'll be really helpful. But you go to the site and you find they're just peddling more false hope. Here's just a few of some of what it says at Eight Steps to Have Hope in the New Year website. Number one, I'm not making these up. Have a cup of tea. Seriously. Have a cup of tea to have hope in the new year. Tea. Number two, check this one out. They get better. Stand in front of a mirror every day and repeat this phrase. I am the key to peace. Number three, this is good, light a candle and meditate. And the website says, now you don't have to believe in any single deity for this to work, just silently reflect on the lit candle and feel the hope. Now that might be a cool thing to do to like relieve stress or whatever, light a candle. But how in the world is reflecting on a stick of wax with a flame sticking out the top of it going to give anybody any hope whatsoever? There are so many counterfeit offers out there promising, pledging to give us the hope we're searching for in the midst of often desperate circumstances. But here's the deal. The only single source of real, true, lasting, genuine, life-changing hope is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is it. Period. And that is so important to understand because hope, see, it isn't just about wishful thinking. Hope isn't just about daydreaming or positive thinking or optimism. Now, please, do not get me wrong. Positive thinking and optimism are far superior to negative thinking and pessimism. I'll take positive thinking and optimism any day over negative thinking and pessimism. You know how incredibly miserable it is to hang around people who only think negatively and are pessimists, right? You're going like, get me out of here. It's tough. But the deal with positive thinking and optimism is that they're merely, they're only psychological. They are just in your head. They're just based on how you think, how you feel, the emotion, the sensation, the thinking of that particular instant. But please understand this. Hope, real, genuine hope, is actually theological. Hope is theological. That means that it's rooted and founded on who God is and how he has performed as God since the very beginning of time. Hope is theological, not just psychological. As a matter of fact, hope is all about our passionate trusting, as one man has said, in the one who can and the one who does make a real and lasting difference. A cup of tea doesn't make a difference. Sure, it'll cause you to have to excuse yourself to make use of a different room in the house, right? Standing in front of a mirror saying, I am the key to peace, that doesn't change anything. There's no hope. It might cause your spouse to think differently about you. Like, whoa, what have I got myself into? Lighting a candle and meditating on it, that doesn't make a difference. Sure, the candle's going to look different because it's burned down, but there's no real difference. Hope is all about passionate trusting in the one who can and does make a real difference, the one who is Jesus Christ. And the reason we're talking about this together as a church is because I am actually praying this verse for myself and for us as a church family and a church community in this new year. It's a very well-known verse. You probably haven't memorized Isaiah 40, 31. Here's what the Bible says. This is what I'm praying for us as a community. 
But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and they will not be faint. And I'm praying that for us as a church family, as a church community, because I get the very real and tangible sense that right now that is precisely where a whole bunch of us are living life. We are in desperate need of having our spiritual strength renewed. Lots and lots of us have gotten tired of passionately running the race that is our relationship with Jesus Christ. Our spiritual strength has been sapped because other diversions have taken our eyes off of the ball that is our first love, Jesus Christ. We've gotten complacent often and lethargic and lacking in discipline and we have given ourselves to lesser things than the one who is to be our one thing, Jesus Christ. But folks, now more than ever, these are not the days for us to be tired and drained of spiritual strength and energy. Please hear me on that. Now more than ever, because of the journey that God has every single one of us on individually, as well as us as a church corporately, these are the days when we need and we must be walking with Jesus in the renewed strength that he promises us. These are the days that we need to be spiritually soaring on wings like eagles. We need to be running with Jesus in such a way that we are not growing weary, walking with him in such a way that we are never growing faint. There's an awful lot of voices going in our culture right now, shouting to us an awful lot of things that we need, isn't there? that we need to be doing, that we need to be about, that we need to be funding and paying for and so on and so forth. And what so often gets lost in all of that cultural noise, all of the cultural hubbub, is the still small voice of God who whispers into our soul that which we desperately need. And Isaiah 40, 31 is it, isn't it? For all of us. Who doesn't need to have their spiritual strength renewed? Why? Because the challenge of knowing and following and walking with Jesus is absolutely no walk in the park, is it? Absolutely not. In Isaiah 40, 31, it doesn't keep it a mystery about the path to renewing our spiritual strength. How do we do it? We hope in the Lord. That means we passionately trust We go all in with the one who can and does make a real difference in our life and in our world. The one who is Jesus Christ. If you do a word study of the New Testament, you'll see that that word hope occurs about 52 times throughout the New Testament alone. Depending on what version of the Bible you use, could be a few more, a few less. If you look at those around 52 different texts, you'll find that hope is not just some elusive ethereal concept as we often portray, there's a sort of floating around out there, but rather hope always, always, always is connected in some way to God himself because God is the author of hope. Romans 15, 13. I pray that God, Paul writes, the source of hope, circle that, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Hope does not come from tea, and hope does not come with mindless repetition, repeating things in front of a mirror, and hope does not come through meditating on a candle. God is the source of hope. He's the author of hope. Second Thessalonians 2.16, check out what Paul prays. 
2 Thessalonians 2.16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us an eternal comfort and a wonderful hope. And this hope deal is absolutely wonderful. And it isn't just floating around out in the stratosphere somewhere, all ethereal and mystical, and we somehow uh, how, ooh, scoop up some hope. Instead, it is sourced in the person, the nature of God himself. See, but often it feels like hope is just out there, doesn't it? And while life can so often be difficult and harsh and completely void of any hope whatsoever, there is hope. There is hope, true hope, that can only be found in Christ and not anywhere else. And that hope becomes available to us via our relationship with him and the three different avenues we have of knowing him inside of that relationship. First of all, God's word gives us hope. God's word gives us hope. Look at Romans 15, 4. Check this out. Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us, and here it is, and the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. And who among us isn't waiting for God to do something, waiting for God to deliver on one or some of his promises? And the Bible tells us that the sacred text, the Bible itself, actually provides us with hope. The stories of old give us hope. And you can take Romans 15.4 in the context of either the Old or New Testament, all of the Bible. And what's very clear from this verse is when we have a hope problem, when we're lacking at hope, it probably points to the fact that we have a scripture problem. That we're not taking in the hope and the encouragement that God provides through the scripture because we're not spending time in the scripture. It's just sitting dusty on a shelf. We pull it off occasionally when we need something or when we want to take it to church once in a while. When we have a hope problem, it probably points to the fact that we have a scripture problem. We're ignoring the text. We're not uncovering the hope that God is trying to conduit into our lives through his sacred text. And we all think, that our problems are so unique, don't we? How many of us think that we're the only person who's ever gone through this and we get a severe case of the PLOMs, the poor little old me's. I'm the only person who's enduring this ever. Nobody's ever had it as hard as me, right? But I promise you, somebody at some point has gone through the exact same thing that you're going through before. And somehow God managed to provide them with hope and encouragement even in their darkest moment and he's going to do the exact same thing with you, the exact same thing with us. And one of the primary means of him providing that hope and that encouragement is through his word and it is right here, available, ready to do just that. For example, when you're lonely and depressed, check out the life of Elijah. Elijah thought he didn't have a friend in the world. He thought he was the only person on the planet who still loved God. There he was, all alone, utterly depressed. But God showed Elijah that is not the case whatsoever. God showed up and revealed to Elijah, I'm still here with you. He also painted a picture for Elijah, God did, so that Elijah would understand things are not anywhere near as bad as you think they are, Elijah. If you're lonely and depressed, Look at the life of Elijah. If you're frightened or if you have some circumstance in your life that's gotten way out of control, check out the life of David, for example. 
Like the whole chronicle of David's entire life. Whoa. Especially the part where he stood nose to nose, toe to toe with a nine foot six inch giant and beat him. God was with David. And God's also with you. And when that's true, fear doesn't stand a chance, does it? If you're being treated unfairly and who isn't, look at the life of Joseph, right? You talk about being treated unfairly. The guy wrote the book on unfair. His family treated him like trash. Potiphar's wife treated him as unfairly as a person could possibly. She accused him of the worst kind of crime. Potiphar himself treated Joseph as if he had actually committed that terrible crime. He hadn't. And the list goes on and on and on. Unfair, unfair, unfair. Yet at the end of the day, Joseph's hope was in God. He knew his hope was sourced and founded and rooted in God and in God alone, not on anything else. And God honored that, didn't he? As Joseph achieved the number two position in all of Egypt. If you find yourself, for example, standing in the midst of a crisis, you could not have it any worse than Daniel. Think about poor Daniel. He finds himself locked in a cage full of hungry, roaring lions. He's got nowhere to go. You talk about a crisis. And something I noticed is that Daniel's first order of crisis management was to pray. It's interesting, isn't it? For a whole bunch of us, when we're in crisis mode, crisis management, the very last thing we do is pray. We're chipping down this whole list of like, oh, I better throw up a little prayer to God in the midst of all of this. Daniel got it right. The first order of crisis management for him was prayer because he knew his hope was in God and in God alone. And none of those stories and so many more that appear in the Bible are just there because God was trying to take up more pages and fatten up his book. Each and every one of the narratives that we read in the sacred text are there because they teach us. They provide us with a regular and fresh avenue of hope in God, telling us the truth. God does love us. He is there for us. He does hear our prayers and our cries. He does care for his children. And none of our problems are new. God's seen it all before. Sure, our outcomes might not be the same as what we see in the sacred text, but still they remind us and they remind us and they remind us in whom our hope rests. And it's in God. His word gives us hope. Number two, the cross of Jesus Christ gives us hope, doesn't it? The cross of Jesus Christ is our perpetual reminder that the God of the universe loves me and that he chose me long long before I chose him. Listen to Jesus' words in John 15, 13. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. There is no greater love than the love that Jesus Christ has for every person on planet earth. That is you. That means you. The love that compelled him to come to earth and die on the cross, paying the price of our sin with his very Life, we can barely begin to understand and fathom and grasp that kind of love. Can you imagine doing that? Can you imagine? And what's true is that that love, the same love that compelled Jesus all the way to the cross on our behalf, delivers great and regular hope to our lives because his love demonstrates just how much Jesus Christ cares for us, how much our Heavenly Father cares for us, and how much he desires what is best for us every single day. 
A verse that we don't spend too much time on is Romans 8.32. Check this out. Since he did not spare even his own son, this is Paul writing about God, since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? And lots of us are like, sweet. I want the everything else part. As a matter of fact, God, I've got a list. Let me unfurl it for you and show you my everything else list. Paul's saying, God went to such great lengths on our behalf that he gave up his own son, and if he sent his own son to die for us, to die in our place, why wouldn't he then give us everything else? But get this. The everything else doesn't necessarily refer to material stuff, sorry. You can put your list away. But actually refers to what we need, and not what we need from our viewpoint, but what we need from God's viewpoint. Everything else is what we need from God's perspective as he looks on our life. And that means sometimes we need some difficult things in our lives, doesn't it? For example, sometimes from God's viewpoint, as God looks on the life of Brian Hopkins, he determines that I actually need to be corrected. I'm out of bounds in some way in my life. And so God orchestrates circumstances that will bring that which is an error in my life into rightness, into obedience, the way God wants it to be. And that's not very fun. If I pulled out a list of the everything else that I wanted from God, correction would not top the list. It might not even be anywhere on the list, would it? But from God's viewpoint, that's what I need. And he didn't hold back his son, and so he's not going to hold back everything else, including corrective action. Other times, there are those of us who need an extra measure of grace and encouragement from God. And so God does this cool and beautiful thing. He orchestrates circumstances and events in such a way that we receive that extra measure of grace and encouragement that we need in a particularly difficult moment. God delivers to us the everything else. You talk about hope. You talk about hope. It isn't what we want necessarily, but it's what God sees we need when he looks on our life. Our hope is in God because he has demonstrated through the cross of Jesus Christ that he desires what is best for us in every single way. No stone left unturned in our lives. The cross of Jesus Christ also brings the hope that comes from God forgiving us. God forgiving us. Your, my, our sin has been paid in full by Christ. And when we place our complete trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, there is absolutely no place whatsoever for guilt and shame in our lives. But so many of us just lug that stuff around, guilt over one shoulder, shame over the other shoulder. They're like buddies. We just tote them around with it. Yep, these are my friends. Taking them with us wherever we go. But there is no place for guilt and shame in the life of a Christ follower, check out Colossians 1, 21 and 22. This is all of our testimony who are in Christ. Colossians 1, starting in verse 21. This is our story right here. This includes you who were once far away from God. That was all of us, right? You were his enemies. 
God's enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. That's what we were about. That was like our before Christ story right there, that first part. Check this out. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. You are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. You talk about hope. How many of us, when we got up this morning, we stood in front of the mirror and we pointed out all of the flaws and faults in our lives. Externally, we might have started with, and then as we began to look at ourselves in the eye, in the mirror, we thought about our soul stuff. All of the stuff that is a heap in our soul. The shame, the guilt, the damage, the stuff from the past. And we could make a list that fast of all of our faults, not God. He has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. That is how God sees you who are in Christ. Holy and blameless without a single fault. Talk about hope. You talk about hope. Jesus reconciled us, made us right with the Father, making it possible for us to be holy and blameless. That means, folks, that our hope never, and I mean never, rests in what we're done, we've done or what we're doing. Instead, our hope rests in the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's done. It's paid for. The cross of Jesus Christ gives us immense hope. Number three, where we'll land today, the resurrected Jesus gives us hope, doesn't he? The resurrected Jesus gives us hope. The tomb where Jesus' body once lay, it's empty now. And that gives us immeasurable hope. And this is so absolutely important to understand because it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ which assures us, promises us, that we can actually change, that we can be different. How often do we wallow in our sin, convinced that we won't ever beat the sin that is in our lives that we just can't change, that there's no hope of us ever being different? We're confined to this existence. We talked about that a little bit last weekend when we talked about besetting sins, remember? We just resign ourselves to sort of, yeah, that's just the way it is. It's just the way things are. The hand I was dealt, the cross I bear, it's just who I am. But that is the furthest thing from the truth, folks. There is hope that you can change, that you can be different. I mean, think about it. God took a body that had been in a tomb, dead for three days, and he breathed life back into it. If he can do that, then he's capable of changing us, no matter how dramatic the needed change is in our lives. Check out Romans 6, starting in verse 3. Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death. For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. This afternoon at five o'clock out at the Bradfords, we're going to baptize some folks. You're welcome. Maybe you need to take that step of obedience to Jesus Christ. You've never been baptized. Just show up and we'll dunk you very gladly. And that's exactly what we're going to do this afternoon. People are going to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And the water symbolizes that. 
They go down into the water, symbolizing the death, the burial under the water, and then they emerge, come up out of the water, symbolizing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Seriously, if you've never taken that step of obedience, why not today? Why not this afternoon? And just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the, back to the text, by the glorious power of the Father, now we also, watch this, may live new lives. Live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. Our hope for change, see, all rests in the resurrected Jesus Christ. That means, Christ follower, that we do not just get to live our lives wallowing in our sin, dabbling in whatever it is that we want to dabble in because it's fun or because it's cool or just because I couldn't help myself. And how many of us have given in to sin over and over and over and over and over again and then just tried to excuse it by saying, it's just the way I am. That is a lie straight from the father of lies, Satan himself. Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, we can change. Christians, we must change. We must be different. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And we talk about that verse an awful lot, but we don't live it an awful lot, do we? Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And I want to, for just a couple of moments, talk very frankly and very directly to only to those of you who call yourself a Christian. If you do not call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, tune me out. Text someone for the next couple of moments. Engage your attention elsewhere, please. Because Christ followers, here's where this goes, and it only goes there for us. If you call yourself a Christian... If you at some point in your life pray to prayer, asking Jesus to be your savior, your boss, whatever, and your life looks precisely the same as it did before you asked Jesus to be your savior, if you're still consumed with the same things, if you're still, still engaged in the same stuff that you were before you crossed the line of faith in him, if your life looks essentially the same as it did before as far as emphasis and priority and activity all you did was add a little Jesus on top, kind of like a little dollop of whipped cream atop your life. You, Christian, have much cause to examine your faith and evaluate whether or not it is real. And that is very serious, and it is very somber, and there is not a nice way to say it. You have very good cause to examine your faith and evaluate whether or not it is real or whether you're just playing some religious game. When our faith in Jesus Christ is the real deal, stuff in our lives changes. We are wrecked. Our life is turned upside down. I am not consumed with the same things that used to consume me. I'm not participating in the same stuff that I used to participate in. I'm not prioritizing the same things that I used to prioritize. It is all different now because of the change that Jesus Christ rends on my life. You are a new person, Christian. The old you is gone. The new life has begun. You can never be the same. It is not possible. 
The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us hope that we no longer have to live lives being slaves to sin. Just as God rose Christ Jesus from the dead, he raises us from spiritual death to spiritual life in him. The resurrected Jesus gives us immense and immeasurable hope. That sailor tapped on the hull of that submarine in the Newport News, Virginia Harbor is there hope? And the answer to the question is, you better believe there's hope. And there's an awful lot of counterfeit hope peddlers out there. It's just absolutely true that the only single source of real, true, lasting, genuine, life-changing hope is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is it. He is the only source of hope in this often very, very messy life. Would you take your stuff and set it aside? And I just invite you to go to prayer. You and Jesus just have some moments of transacting whatever business that you need to transact with him. You can do that now. Is there hope? Darn right there's hope. It's not going to come through tea or repetitious chanting or lighting candles. Hope, real, lasting, life-changing hope comes only through God, through your relationship with Him, through His Son, Jesus Christ. So today, where is your hope? What plan are you working to get to heaven when this life is over and gone? I sure hope that you don't think that just because you call yourself religious and just because you come to church that that's going to get it done. Because it's not. hope of eternity with God only comes through a personal, intimate, one-on-one relationship with Jesus Christ. The relationship that he's inviting you right now to step into. God, what a privilege it is to be here. What a privilege it is to have life in our bodies. What a life that you've given us. And God, I for one confess that I've been an abuser of your grace. That I've stepped outside of your will for my life. And I knew that you'd forgive me. And how many of us, God, have done the exact same thing? not alone in that we confess the sin of grace abuse and we ask you to forgive us and we repent and we turn and we run from the same stuff that we've been falling into over and over and over again and we say God we want to go a different way we want to go a new way we want to go your way because our way 
sure isn't working. And thanks God for loving us unconditionally even in the midst of our grace abuse. You just never give up on us. You never let go of us. You never stop pursuing us. You never stop loving us. And God, I pray for the people here right now, inside of hearts right now, God, there's tension. As folks consider a first time step across the line of faith in you, if that describes you wherever you are, I just invite you to say to God, I want a relationship with you. You don't have to say it out loud. Just say it in the quietness of your heart. Say, God, I want a relationship with you. Please come into my life. Please forgive me. I get it. I screwed up. I sinned. I botched it. And you made a way for me to be reconciled to God. And I say thank you. And I repent. And I turn from my sin. I turn from my own path. And God, I am going your way once and for all. I'm going your way. God, would you please help me begin the new life that you promised that's in you, founded in you, rooted in you. And if you prayed with me just then, that is the biggest decision of your whole life. There's nothing trivial, there is nothing trite, there is nothing small about that choice. And it's such a big deal that around here we ask people to tell us when they make that decision. Nobody's going to embarrass you. Nobody's looking around this room except me. I'm just going to ask you, if you prayed with me just then, would you just slip your hand up and make eye contact with me and just say, yes, I stepped across the line of faith in Jesus. I did that. Just make sure I catch your eye. Yeah, back in the back. Way to go. Way to go. And right there, way to go in the back. I see you. Everything's different right now. You are new. God, we're overwhelmed at who you are. That you love us as much as you do. That you care for us so tangibly as to have sent Jesus and to be engaged with us every moment of every single day. We're not alone. You're there providing hope in the midst of the most hopeless of circumstances. When the odds are as long as they can possibly get, you are there dispensing hope. We receive it, God. And we pledge to you to live our lives in worshipful and grateful obedience to the one who makes it all possible. The one who died so that we might have life. We love you, God, with all of us. And we pray this in Jesus' holy, precious name. And everyone said, amen.